On this episode of AV Week, we talk transparent OLED, chip plants in Arizona, and Santa.com. All this and more on this episode of AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Nation is brought to you by Sure, because every voice matters. This is AV Week, episode 590, recorded Friday, December 9th. Welcome to this episode of AV Week. This is your weekly roundup of all the latest news and stories for the AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv, and this week I'm pleased to be joined by three of my good friends. First, we have Dawn Mead. She's an AV architect for a uh, a company that we cannot name. Hey, Don, how are you? Very good, thanks. <laughs> then we've got Brad Hinsey. He is the executive VP of global marketing over at Crestron. How are you doing, Brad? Doing great. Thanks for having me join, Matt. Thanks for joining us. And last but certainly not least, we've got my favorite Sure rep, Cassie Berger. She's a senior regional sales manager over at Sure. How are you doing, Cassie? Doing well, thanks. Great to be Thank here. You. Thank you all for joining us. All right, we're going to kick this off with a story that comes to us from AV Magazine. Transparent OLED makes K-pop store a physical metaverse. Uh, two things that I just don't want to experience. Uh, LG has provided <laughs> 33 transparent OLED panels to create a dreamy atmosphere uh, suffused with K-pop videos and merch at a Seoul store. Read through the article, take a look at some of the pictures and uh, some of the video. Uh, essentially, they've got transparent uh, OLEDs throughout the store with music videos and some content and some advertising playing uh, that, as they said, create a dreamy atmosphere. Don, is this the sad future for retail and entertainment? I think using it in that way alone very possibly could be. Excellent. Um, I am a huge fan of transparent OLED. I think it has a lot of fantastic uses, including in the retail space. Some of the coolest ads and coolest uses I've seen, you know, when I was out in Vegas, you would see storefronts that have a transparent OLED and then the actual product behind it. And you can see the actual product and then you can have different messages and different things coming up in front of it or, or you know, maybe a color change of the item. Those sorts of things are fantastic. Even using them in the front of slot machines where you can still have physical reels, but then have the overlay of the animations and the whiz bang stuff. That's great. I'm skeptical about the metaverse because I'm old enough to remember a few years back, like 10 years ago, everyone was moving their business on to Second Life because that was the cool new thing. And isn't it awesome? We're making actual money in a fake world, blah, blah, blah. And that lasted, you know, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> just because uh, Zuck is involved with this one, you know, I... If we learned anything else from the past couple of years of COVID is that you actually need to physically see people once in a while, even the most stone hard in, in, introvert hermit occasionally needs a hug. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and the metaverse ain't going to be it. So, you know, I'm not I'm not looking at the matrix where we all just plug in and live our lives. Um, so it's a very cool technology. The OLED part is fantastic. Color me skeptical on the metaverse. And sorry to that really sweet girl that sat with me at the Infocom Women's Breakfast that worked for Meta. I, I, sorry, lady. I can't help you. Yeah, don't don't take a look at their stock price either because, yeah, that's a, 
memorandum on all things meta. Brad, is there really a is there a use case for transparent beyond advertising and digital at home? I I quasi see it, but I don't want to see it. I I, I think it's just an ad opportunity. I think that's the obvious one, right? That's the that's the go to. But I think the reality is is that once you have uh, t uh, technology like this that becomes more ubiquitous, really creative people will find great ways to leverage it and, and try and use that. Um, you know, are there applications where, you know, maybe you use it in a meeting in a conference space to bring more uh, connection between the participants and the people in the room, right? Because if you can see the people uh, on the call in the transparent screen and the people in the room on the other side, right, then you feel like you're engaged in that other way. I don't know. There, there could be some really fun and interesting ways to use it. Right now, the obvious one, mostly because of the cost, right, and uh, mm -hmm. everything that's in, involved with using it, advertising is that thing. But make it more accessible and uh, give, put it in everybody's hands, and they'll, they'll try and find something different with it. Without saying anything else about my job, you know, there's a real great use case. You know, all those nice 1940s movies with the guys around the table pushing little soldier men across maps of Europe and things. Mm -hmm. Giant map on the wall or a giant mm -hmm. image on the wall, mm -hmm. transparent screen over it. And you can show real time events mm -hmm. of, you know, I mean, we're hearing about Ukraine and everything else in the world. Yeah. Troop movements, Couldn't missile you, movements, just do that uh, whatever with a else. regular yeah. LED, though. Like, I, I just... I'm lost. Anyways, Cassie, <laughs> and, and this is, maybe this is me just being me, but I don't want to shop in a store that has 33 video walls. I was in a Zara the other day and they had two like four point pitch displays that were just atrocious on the eyes. I, I don't want that. It, are we hitting the point of oversaturation? with displays? I think, you know, the big thing now and what we've seen over the last so many years with pandemic is the immersive experience. And that's what they're trying to replicate. So they see it at museums, they see it, um, they're trying to create this immersive experience. You walk into an environment and you feel it. Um, unfortunately, from a retail standpoint, I don't see that as a successful business model or plan, especially in markets like the United States. Um, yes, more successful over in places like Asia and elsewhere, maybe Europe, but it's just not something that I think our, our market can, can really appreciate or would want and choose to appreciate. Um, the product in and of itself is, in my opinion, future, right? That's, that's exactly where we're going to see um, a lot of our production come into play. They're going to use it for production. They're going to use it for uh, content creation. And in the U.S., in particular in this market, um, the content creation side of it and doing studios with this product is going to be big. And if they can leverage that and really uh, focus on that angle with this, then, then that's going to be successful. But um, yeah, I agree with you, Matt, for the first time ever that we, we're not going to see this as being a highly successful retail plan just because we don't want to walk in and experience that, that very limited market. Yeah, very true. And, and that was the goal of the entire show was to get Cassie to agree with me on something. <laughs> so success. We're done. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for watching. No. All right. Let's move on to our 
uh, second story of the day. This comes to us from M N Gadget. TSMC is building a second chip plant in the uh, warm state of Arizona to meet U.S. semiconductor demand. <clears throat> Part of this is uh, a, a section of the CHIP Act that was introduced um, about two years ago, I believe, to try and bring some of that manufacturing back into America. Um, Brad, let me let me start with you on this. Does this actually help chip manufacturing? I know in theory it does because they're going to manufacture chips. But if it, that's the only part of the supply chain that is actually occurring in North America, how does that actually help us? Well, I think that uh, it will help uh, by adding more capacity overall, right? Um, and the location matters, um, but bringing it to uh, the U.S. so it's not all centralized on in one part of the world, we bring more of that here. Um, and we increase our ability to produce more and more chips. Um, you know, we have an insatiable demand for uh, for chips, right? The world, everything that we use um, has more chips in it today than it did yesterday. And tomorrow it's going to be way more than that. And so we need that added capacity. Uh, and ultimately that capacity then will turn into more innovative and, and interesting products. So I think it's a great thing to have it here in the U.S. so that we have that diversification we can bring more resilience to the supply chain, but it is only one component of the supply chain, right? There are so many factors and the, the world has talked for a long time about how, how brittle the supply chain could be. And we're all feeling it a little at this moment. Mm -hmm. So anything that we can do to, to shore that up, and it takes many years to get that built out, we got to start, right? And so I'm uh, glad that we're uh, taking some of these steps right now. Yeah, I like that. Cassie, I mentioned it, Brad mentioned it. it, the chip manufacturing side is only one, I don't want to say small aspect, but it is a small aspect of it. Even if we can build all the chips, realizing that this won't be on board uh, and producing till 2024 and this particular plant till 2026. But even if we can produce them, everything still has to go somewhere else currently for assembly and everything else. Is there an opportunity and is there a business case to try and bring full manufacturing of the products that these chips go into, uh, maybe like the companies that you and Brad work for, to, to actually manufacture completely in, a, in America or in North America? And, and again, not specifically your companies, but in general, can we do that here? Uh, I think that's ideal in a lot of ways. We don't want to offshore. We don't want to rely on sources. Um, and we certainly don't want to come into a position where a ton of product or components are sitting on boats offshore that we can't access, so we can't build products. We experienced that 12 months ago. Um, but to the point of it's a small piece of the overall problem. Uh, is very relevant because unfortunately, we're also relying on people and on humans uh, to do a lot of this build still. And so when it comes to supply chain, we're not even taking in consideration the fact that these chips and this, this new facility is going to produce local or US-based. That's fantastic. But a lot of those chips are also going into uh, phones and automobiles and other industry products. So we're not even probably going to see those chips. 
Um, so when we talk about everything else, it'd be great to manufacture everything in the U.S., but it's also unrealistic from a standpoint of it, it's not going to impact the overall challenge in a significant way, in my opinion. We have people, we have other components, we have other issues that we need to address and the chip manufacturing side of it, though very important. And for manufacturers like ours, we actually had to redesign a lot of our products because of chips and because of old chips not being available and now the requirement for new chips. So it's only a piece of a thousand piece puzzle that we're trying to put together here. Yeah, that's a really good point. Don, I'm, I'm gonna give you arguably the easiest and the hardest question out, out, across the board the, in the least political way I can. Um, I have yet to see a study or even a forecast that compares the end user price of a North American built chip compared to something built somewhere else. We in North America are really good at getting on a high horse and talking about building in America and doing all these things. And yet when the rubber hits the road and you actually start to look at it, it's very different. I looked at a, a product from a company called Origin that's making like jeans and boots and stuff like this up in Massachusetts. It is three to four times what I would pay for a pair of jeans that are made in America, um, which I still have to ship to Canada. I realize all that. Um, <laughs> But it is three times the cost of a pair of Levi's that, yes, I can feel warm and fuzzy about wearing jeans made by Jocko and his guys up in mass. But is there is this more just politicizing this or is this actually going to be able to be competitive on the global market? I mean, that's a really tough question, because no matter how hard you try, we are never going to in this country where we believe in, you know, actual minimum wages and fair treatment of workers and unions and all of that sort of thing, we are never going to be able to compete with how many billion Chinese and Indian and other developing nation sweatshops. And they're not all sweatshops, but even the ones that aren't sweatshops are basically sweatshops. I mean, <laughs> if you don't want to go yes. to work in America. You, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you don't want to go to work in America, you, you quiet quit and, you know, go on the dole until you can find something new or not you know, whatever. Over there, you can't quit because guys with guns show up. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why people in those parts of the world can make things a lot cheaper, even with the cost of shipping. But there's also other factors to take into account, even though they may not be competitive on a mass scale for everybody, because there's always going to be somebody wants their cheap, she, you know, she in uh, fast clothing that you can only pick up on Amazon and, and eBay or whatever. Um, Alibaba, but there's also lots of companies that have to buy American or mm -hmm. have to buy American or friendly nation. And it gets in this field specifically, one of the biggest eye-opening things since joining my current employer is how difficult it is to find products that are made substantially assembled and following all the P, you know, do dotting all mm -hmm. the I's and crossing all the T's to follow the letter of the law for things we can use in some of our spaces that can't use just the cheapest thing on the market. There are entire sections of Infocom. I can't even walk down the aisles because I'll be like, hi, I can't speak to you. You can't speak to me and you're not going to learn my name. You know I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a crazy thing to think of, but knowing that those are what we have to do, we have to budget accordingly. 
So I think if it comes straight down to cost, no, the made in U.S. is never going to compete with the things made in China, India, wherever else that we might have some third world situations, but they put developing, you know, manufacturing. However, you know, some of our manufacturers now build things in Mexico, mm-hmm. not totally third world, but a lot less expensive than America. And those products are considered on some of the lists that we're allowed to use, especially if the components come from America or similar friendly nations. So it's a complex question. Dollar signs alone, you're always going to go for the cheap. But there's a lot of people more and more that are interested in security and knowing where their products came from and how they were created for purely moral purposes. Yeah. That's a really good point. We don't want little five-year-olds making our Nikes anymore. I guess not now. (laughs) I was fine until you said that. Guilt trip. Holiday guilt trip. All right. Let's let's go with the story that was handpicked for Cassie. This comes to... By Tim, no less. I didn't do this. You cannot blame me for this one, Cassie. Uh, Coming to us from aviation.tv, Santa.com debuts the world's first AI-powered interactive virtual Santa uh, for visits for kids of all ages. Um, if you if you haven't seen this, I did not know this was a thing. Um, but if you go to Santa.com, there's a whole bunch of Christmassy stuff in there. But specifically, there is a AI-driven conversational video technology from StoryFile that allows adults, kids, whatever, to talk and have a conversation with a Santa of your Santa dreams, I guess. Um in a weird, creepy AI situation. So I actually did this. So you guys didn't have to. Thank you. And you're welcome. And Santa was actually able to, oddly enough, answer the weird questions I threw at him in a semi-disturbing manner. Cassie, <clears throat> beyond the the coolness, if you will, of having essentially like a virtual assistant type thing where you can talk to somebody and get a semi-relevant answer is this cool technology is this creepy technology when you add the santa side into it does it make it better does it make it worse or are you just creeped out in general i mean i'd save a lot of money on therapy if i just used the ai santa so there's i mean there's that and i'm i i'm intrigued by it yeah i'm intrigued in that capacity Um, but you know, you're taking away the whole point of that experience, which as parents, we want to lend to our children of sitting on a creepy guy's lap, who's dressed in a red suit and having them tell them him what they want for a Hallmark holiday. Um, but you know, that aside, I think the technology portion of it and the ability to do what they brought to your experience and you asked him questions that we'll not get into, but the fact that he was it, I'm sorry, it was able to intelligently respond to them with not only a basic response, but an actual strategic explanation is fairly impressive. And I would say very concerning in a standpoint of what our future renders because if we take in consideration that this is a Santa AI, I can only imagine um, the sophisticated AI 
uh, technology that we'll see in the upcoming very near-term future when it comes to corporate uh, development, um, experience in the workplace, everything else. You th think about that. They're, they're, they've marketed this and it's not a Hallmark holiday. This is actually a holiday, so I, I appreciate it, but Santa is in my opinion. Um, but, but if they've mastered this to that capacity, we're only moments away from seeing this replicated in every industry and in every experience and every transaction that we have. And so you're removing the human aspects much faster than I think any of us anticipated and making us far less relevant and required. And so we should all be very fearful of everything we're trying to accomplish professionally and personally with the sophisticated technology that this particular website is, is introduced. But Matt, I think it's terrible. It's, it's like my worst nightmare come to fruition. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I'd agree. Yeah, it's creepy <laughs> as heck. That was my takeaway. Uh, Don, I, and, and shut up, Cassie, um, <laughs> for what you're going to think as soon as I say this. I grew up at a time when all we heard about was your brain can't tell the difference between the video game you're playing if you're shooting someone, right? Your brain, as a younger kid, your brain can't tell the difference between that it thinks what's on tv is reality and there's a bunch of studies to back that up there's one or two that fight that but typically that's kind of generally accepted when i looked at this it was like talking to somebody on a slightly delayed video call that's all it was there i'm looking to poke holes in this and i can't do it what does this do and what does this mean for children who are going to experience this like when you go to the mall and you sit on the creepy dude's lap it everybody thinks that's santa at, at a young age but you're sitting on somebody's stinking lap he's right there you can pull his beard but think about the data that they're collecting on you too that that creepy old guy I, at the mall that's what I he mean. doesn't have data collection but this no, ai does no all they did was take maybe your phone number to, to, to send you the, the picture. What does this do to our kids who are going to just grow up with this and think this is normal? I, I mean, that is a concern, especially if th this was going to be my question to you since I haven't played with the AI yet. Mm -hmm. um, if, as long as it doesn't have that dead eye, uncanny valley thing that that Polar Express movie did that I still no. can't watch. He's just smiling and moving. I mean, that, I don't think it would be as traumatic to kids as maybe sitting on some weirdos lap in a mall. Uh, can you tell we all had trauma experiences <laughs> sitting on laps in malls? <laughs> but I, the thing is, what you got to keep in mind is some of today's kids, they already have this. You know, for the past three years, kids didn't go to school. Little kids that were born during the pandemic, they didn't see human people for like the first two years of their life in some cases other than the people in their house. You know, they FaceTimed relatives mm -hmm. and then they meet you in person. And you're like, oh my God, you're big and tactile and right there, you know. Uh, you know, these are kids that have been going to school virtually. So why wouldn't you go see Santa Claus virtually? Why wouldn't you assume that's real? And that's problematic on, from the front of being able to discern fake from real. But even prior to seeing this story was being discussed today, I'd been reading some AI things recently 
And professors are beginning to report there are AI apps and programs out there that will write for you. They will blog for you. I get things all the time saying, hey, you want to get your blog up to date? You know, just hire our AI to write your blog and you can't tell it's written by a computer. Um, but there are sites out there where kids are now paying instead of buying somebody's old essay or uh, college paper, they're hiring AIs to write them and they're plausible and professors can't pick them out from actual written by human ones. And so, you know, when the computers are that sophisticated that we can't tell them from humans at all, whether, you know, just the written word, the spoken word, visually in the case of Santa Claus, then we need to be a little bit more concerned with things. Um, you know, as recently as 2019, Sophia, what they're, they're calling the world's first mm -hmm. robotic citizen. I don't know if you've seen that creepy thing online anywhere. She said in an interview, jokingly, about eliminating humans. Um, there was another AI recently that, that just in the past couple months where the researcher said, okay, AI, you know, you put in your, your format of what you want the computer to do, whether it's write a blog on AV, you know, write a paper on Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars. They, in this case, they told the AI that they wanted it to act like a killer AI from a movie and how it would respond. And the thing went crazy and was like, well, you know, humans use too many of the resources, and so it would be very plausible. Yes, I have the intelligence that I could build a cure for cancer, but I could just as easily create a more virulent form of cancer and release it. And, and I mean, the AI was getting in character, but it was also getting creepy. So if, you know, we, we just need to be aware that this is happening and don't clearly buy into things, you know, the deep fake photos. That's not really, you know, whoever the, the actor is or the person is doing those stunts that's a stunt man with a face painted on him you know yeah. so it, it's a whole thing that as humans not just as kids looking at santa that we need to be concerned about brad put a bow on this uh for us <laughs> see what i did there um put a bow on this it, should we be as people that work in the tech space obviously not necessarily directly in the ai space but as people who all work heavily in the tech space and our events, people that are a little closer to this, should we be really trying to raise a flag of caution about what is going to happen and what the potential is with some of this deep fake and AI generated interaction can be? Yeah, I, I think so. I think we as uh, smart technology minded people have to help society uh, wrap our heads around all of these uh, changes and advancements, right? We've seen this with social media over the last 10 years, right? All the unintended consequences of making information highly shareable uh, and making that that ability available to everyone, right? Now you get uh, into problems with misinformation and disinformation and getting that leveraged, right? Um, and then AI and deep fakes take that to that whole a whole new level. But what we have to do is learn the new skills, teach our children teach others the skills to uh, examine and pull that apart, right? We'll have to do things differently. We'll have to, uh, you know, you don't trust immediately, right? You, you try to uh, develop the way to pull it apart, right? Back to the point about the homework, uh, right? If, a, if the point of homework is to test the uh, knowledge retention of a student, and you can't reliably use writing anymore, you'll have to go to a different method, right? Um, maybe interviews more so than, than writing reports. So we as a society are going to have to evolve in this way, uh, embrace these new tools. And I think that we 
we as uh, technology people that are watching these trends and really can understand it, we have to spend the time and the energy uh, to share that with other people and be responsible in our own uh, uses of the, the technology. But there are also plenty of ways we can embrace it for uh, our benefit too, right? Because, you know, if you've got a chatbot that can offload uh, the menial tasks from uh, people so that they can focus on higher level ones, that's great. That's a, that's a very good uh, thing. If you can offer that to an to your customers so you can provide faster, better customer service and they're more happy, that's a, that's a good thing too, right? But with all technology, we all have to keep in mind what are those un unintended consequences and how can we help each other navigate uh, past those, right? And have the conversations to say, what do we do with this? We can't shut it down, right? This is, it's progressing, um, but how can we use it for good and then also learn the skills necessary to manage any of the bad consequences? Yeah, that's a great point. All right, let's wrap it there. Thank you all for joining us. Don, if people want to connect with you, uh, they can't learn about the company that you work for, but if they want to connect with you, um, how can they do that? Well, you can always find me on all the socials as either at avdon or Don Mead, M-E-A-D-E, just like the fort and the general. Um, otherwise, you can find me here on avnation.tv just as often as Tim will let me show up. And uh, hopefully you can see me at shows if we keep doing those in person, because it was real exciting to see everyone in uh, in June. So let's let's do that again. Brad, thank you, sir, for joining us. If people want to connect with you, learn more about Crestron, where can they do that? Um, all of the socials for me under Brad Hintzy, LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, and then, of course, Crestron, Crestron.com. And then all the socials there uh, just as Crestron. Awesome. Cassie, where can people connect with you? Learn more about Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Cassie Berger, um, or you can reach out to me directly through my email, burgerc at shure.com. Please check out our consumer website, sure.com, as well as our tech portal if you are on the integration side. Excellent. Thank you all for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and most other social platforms. But more importantly, please visit avnation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of AV Week.